Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Hi everyone, thank you for joining us this morning. Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series. In fact, our last one of the semester, so thank you all for being here. Um, as many of you know, the Women in Public Policy Program closes gender gaps in economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. Um, it's our pleasure today to have Professor Simone Shainer here, and I welcome up Rohini to give the formal introduction. Thanks. So um, I'm just going to not take much time from Simone. So we're delighted to have Simone here. She's a faculty member at Dartmouth, who we're lucky enough that she's visiting us this year. So. Uh, for many of you uh, here, Simone is someone you can reach out to if you want to talk to her more about these issues. Uh, my suggestion is that we sort of run this like and what we think of as an economic seminar, so feel free to jump in with questions as we go along, and Simone can, of course, defer them till afterwards. Uh, she wants to look. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks so much uh, for, for having me. It's a real pleasure uh, to be here to present um, this work on um, women's uh, financial control and labor supply in India. It's joint with um, both Rohini as well as um, Natalia Rigol and Charity Troyer Moore, who are here at Harvard, as well as Erica Fields at, uh, at Duke. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the, the sort of big picture question motivating this, this, this paper is why aren't Indian women, and not just Indian women, but women in a number of emerging economies working more. Um, you see in a number of, of countries, uh, over thinking of over, say, the past 30 years, female labor force participation has been flat in the face of, of quite robust economic growth. Things are quite stark in India where, um, you know, between 1990 and 2015, real GDP per capita went from $375 to almost $1,600. So this is a really, really wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, but at the same time, uh, female labor force participation dropped by about uh, nine percentage points. You know, this in and of itself isn't inherently um, inconsistent with standard, um, you know, economic models where we think that people might, you know, be enticed to work when wages are higher, or you know, perhaps choose to exit the labor force as, as the household gets richer. But what's particularly striking is there seems to be a lot of latent female labor supply in India, and that if you look at the most recent wave of the National Sample Survey, which is India's labor force survey, 34% um, of rural non-working women would say, well, if I, could, if I could find a job, I would, I would take it. Uh, and so, so the question is, what's keeping these women out of the labor force? There's a number of explanations that are plausible. Some of them, you know, perhaps on the labor demand side, you know, which would revolve around the notion of availability of good jobs. Um, however, you know, sort of, this paper is very much about the labor supply side, so sort of saying, well, you know, holding constant the set of jobs that are available to women, um, there may be certain constraints that are keeping them out of the labor force. And in a context, um, like India, I'll talk a lot more about the context going forward, we might think that, um, issues surrounding gender norms and women's um, bargaining and socioeconomic position within the household might be particularly important um, in terms of keeping them uh, in the household and preventing them from pursuing work outside the home. Um, so 
this is a, there's probably perhaps norms make more sense to folks in this audience than in standard economics audience. I would take a minute to say, okay, well, I just said norms. You know, what does that what does that mean? How do we think about norms as um, as an economist? Um, probably uh, the best known work within economics on uh, gender identity norms is by um, George Akerlof and Rachel Cranton, which sort of introduced this notion of identity into an economic model. And the idea here is that you know someone's identity, say either it's a, you know, a mother or a woman or, or a husband or a provider, are going to dictate a certain set of behaviors that one is meant to follow. And if you deviate from those behaviors, you experience a, a utility loss of, of some sort. Um, People think about norms a bit differently in, in psychology, where often there would be this notion that um, you know, there, there, there are ways of behaving that are really not so much about your personal set of preferences and beliefs, but dictated by the community. And you know, sort of if my community thinks that, that women are not supposed to go outside the household, even if I personally have no problem going outside the household to work, um, I may choose to stay home to avoid that kind of group sanction. Within this paper, we're not really differentiating between these notions. Um, but what we're particularly interested in thinking about is this idea that there might be something beyond the fact that, you know, I don't like, say, working in the field all day that would, would, would keep a, a woman um, from, from entering the labor force, some sort of external utility cost. Um, and I'll refer to this sort of as social constraints um, throughout, throughout the talk. Um, there, there is a, a growing bit of um, research in economics on norms, um, and particularly norms as they relate to uh, female labor force participation. Um, and you know what we see there is it seems that norms governing female labor force supply certainly matter and tend to be quite persistent, um, you know, sort of over long-moving um, historical trends. But but they can evolve over time, um, and and so we believe that this could be important in our context. And one idea that we're going to explore, um, I'll motivate this a little bit with an example on the next two slides. But then you know kind of come back to it after showing you um, some of our main results is this idea that you know, these norms aren't just something that women shoulder, um, but in fact, it could be quite important to men. Um, in that, uh, in, in our context, it's a very strong breadwinner norm, which is also something that people talk about even in this country, where you know, if a woman is working, it might be a signal that her husband has failed as a breadwinner. So it might be that men actually have strong preferences their wives stay out of the labor market because it says something about their, their masculinity. And in a context where women don't have a lot of bargaining power, that might mean that women are sort of you know, kept out of the labor market owing to the preferences of, of their husbands. And so this is going to be one of the hypotheses we explore um, in the context of um, this paper. Yes. So is the reason why you're not Um, it's certainly plausible, and we'll write down the model. Um, you know, the, the long and the short of it is that uh, a, a cost that's borne solely by women can't explain the results that we see. So we have to sort of move move beyond that. Um, but I think certainly in this context, I, I would conjecture that both gender, you know, these things are operative for both genders. Um, I think certainly within the empirical work, this this sort of notion of um, a mismatch or, or different preferences within a household is a little less well explored. Um, okay, so to quickly kind of just motivate that idea before diving into the main results, um, I wanted to show you some cross-country evidence um, from the World Value Survey. Um, and so one thing that's nice about the World Value Survey is it asks a set of standardized questions about gender attitudes um, to folks in um, a large number of countries. 
And here we're making use of uh, four different questions. One is whether or not somebody with it agrees with the statement that you know when jobs are scarce they should go to men instead of women. Um, you know, men make better business executives than women. Men make better politicians and government officials than women. And uh, being a housewife is just as fulfilling um, as working for pay. What we kind of do is aggregate these and, and standardize them and turn this into a standardized index where um, larger numbers here are going to indicate um, greater support for women in the labor force. Um, and these are countrywide means by gender and um, uh, countrywide means of this uh, index by gender on the x-axis, and then the y-axis is female labor force participation. So, I mean, the first thing that you can see, this is perhaps not surprising, is that you know when both men are more supportive of women working and when women are more supportive of women working, you do see higher levels of female labor force participation. Um, but what's interesting is you can also look at this gap in attitudes, and that's what we do here, where we just look at the difference between you know, women's support for women's work and, and men's support for, for women's work within a given country. Um, and I think that there's two things that I personally found pretty striking um, in this picture. You know, the first is that this gap is positive for all but one country. So it does seem to be uh, something to this notion that women are kind of more progressive in their attitudes towards women working than, than men are across a large number of countries. Um, and the other thing that you'll note is that uh, there's sort of a negative line here and that um, you know, in the countries with the lowest levels of female labor force participation, which is largely the Middle East, North Africa, uh, India, India's here, um, th this gap between men and women is the highest, right? Which is also consistent with this notion of, say, in a place like India, you seem to see a lot of latent, latent female labor supply. You know, women are saying, well, I would like to work, but there's something that's holding them back. Okay. I'm just having a little trouble hearing you. Oh, I'm sorry. I can speak up. Are you guys? All right. Sorry. I'll, I'll, try to be, I'll try to be louder. Um, okay, so with this, you know, kind of in the back of your minds, what I want to do now is talk about what we do in this paper. Um, and so what I'm going to do is show you the results from a field experiment that we conducted um, in rural India with a set of poor married couples um, who are potential beneficiaries of India's public workfare program uh, called the National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, or NREGS. Um, and I'll talk more about the context in a few slides, but this is a place where there's very strong norms against both female work as well as female mobility um, more broadly. And the status quo in this state um, when we started working was that if a woman worked for this public workfare program, um, her wages would be deposited into um, a bank account typically owned by her husband. Okay, so this is a context where there are certain types of work that are, you know, this, this work is actually often meant to be made accessible to, to women explicitly, and the proceeds of that work are transferred directly to men. Um, and, you know, so this is an interesting policy setting, um, and it allows us to ask this question of whether or not simply strengthening women's control over this labor income um, can, you know, one, increase participation in um, this workfare program, but can it also draw women into the labor force more broadly? Um, you know, what I'll show you is that the answer to both these questions is, is yes. Um, and we're going to answer these questions with a field experiment where we have um, a control group, uh, a treatment arm where we uh, do just financial inclusion for women. Yeah, that's Two questions that you can feel free to get from. The first one is, is it a husband account or is it a household account? Yeah, so 
it's by and large, and I think this is actually something we've struggled with because you know what the government thinks is joint versus what um, the bank thinks is joint is very different. So like if you talk to a state policymaker, they'll say, oh well, it's a joint account, it's a household account. If you go down and you ask people who owns this account, you know virtually all of the accounts in our sample are individually owned. So, so she doesn't have signatory power. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And the second thing is, uh, what's the level of accessibility of those accounts? Is it like you can access them in the village with mm -hmm. with ATM, or you have to walk there and get them? Or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, kind of when we started, um, these accounts are the, you know there's a bit of a mixture um, in that so. I'm going to talk more about financial inclusion in our context later, but you know, we started this program when our partner state was in the midst of a big, big financial inclusion push, um, the goal of which was to install a banking kiosk in every, uh, essentially in every village. Um, all the women's accounts that we're going to open are accounts of those banking kiosks, so the notion is that we're giving women accounts that they can open, you know, kind of access within their community. Some of these initial men's accounts are going to be those accounts, but some of the accounts will also be accounts that are only accessible, say, um, at, a, at, a, at a bank. Um, you know, kind of further further into town. Um, so, so there's a bit of a variety. Um, and so, so we have you know, our control group, financial inclusion for women. I'll talk more about those, those accounts and what they look like later. Um, and then what we're going to do is we're going to marry financial inclusion for women with um, you know, kind of transferring this uh, direct deposit from the man's account to the woman's account. And you know what's nice about this design is that we can look at changing women, you know, sort of changing control of um, women's wages while holding the financial inclusion environment constant. Um, and so the way I want to structure things for this talk is I'll first tell you a bunch about um, the experiment, um, both you know, what we did as well as the context. Um, and then I want to go through the main results in terms of you know, what did this do uh, to you know, women's use of bank accounts, what did this do to women's um, receipt of these workfare payments, and what did this do to um, women's participation, both in the workfare program and in um, the labor market more broadly? Um, you know, what you'll see is that they work more for the program, but they particularly work more for the private sector, um, which is a bit of a challenge uh, for standard uh, economic models of household decision making. So once we go through those results, I want to take a pause and talk a little bit through some different mechanisms by which we might see these empirical results. Um, and then, uh, depending on how much time we have, I can also then talk through um, some of the downstream outcomes we see in terms of um, women's financial control and mobility, and then, and then I'll conclude. So, uh, a bit more about our experimental context. Um, we uh, conducted this experiment uh, in partnership with the uh, state of Madhya Pradesh, which is a state uh, in, in northern India. I think it's one of the larger states, also one of the poorer states in the country, um, as well as two large public sector banks in, in the region. Um, we worked in 197 local government units, which are called Gram Panchayats. Um, this is sort of the lowest, most decentralized level of uh, government within India. In our context, this is you know, kind of a collection of anywhere from one to three villages. Um, and spread out across uh, four districts in the north of the state. Um, you know, this is an area, again, with pretty strong traditional gender norms. You see, you know, male-female sex ratios of 1.1 to 1.2. This is roughly on par with um, the state in India with the most, um, the most missing women. So uh, it's an area where women face a lot of restrictions. I'll talk more about that in a second. Um, and, and we're going to be working with a sample of um, about 5,600 married couples where, you know, one, 
Um, someone within the household was listed as having um, worked for NREGS within the past year. We wanted to identify a set of uh, households that we thought were likely beneficiaries of this workfare scheme. Um, and you know, at least one spouse also reported ever having worked for the program. Um, I'll talk more about this in a minute, but there's, there's a fair amount of you know, corruption and leakage within this program, so we also wanted to identify households that were, they personally said that they were actively participating, um, and the wife did not have a bank so a little bit more detail on um, you know women's lives here. Uh, you know what you can see. So this is from um, you know, kind of due to time and budget issues. We didn't have a super detailed baseline survey. So what I'm going to do is show you. These are mostly statistics from our end line, uh, but from the control group where we didn't do any intervention. So you can kind of think of this as what the world would look like in the status quo with no changes. 26% um, of uh, women report that their uh, principal activity was working in the past year. I think the, the national average for India in 2016 was 28%. So in terms of female labor force participation, this is actually you know, pretty, pretty close to what we see on average. Um, but we can see is about 10% of our women can read and write, and on average they have less than a year of education. So this is an area where you know, these women, um, who I think are about 40 years on average, have uh, years old on average, have not a lot of human capital. Um, they were married, you know, kind of uh, around age of 15 and had their first child around the age of 19. Um, and, you know, what you can see is that there's sort of pretty limited mobility and that only 39% of uh, women reported having gone to the village market by themselves in, in the past year. Okay, so you should be thinking of a context where, um, yeah, women don't have a lot of kind of knowledge or a lot of freedom, freedom of movement um, when making decisions about um, all right, so let me tell you a bit more about um, the National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme in this, um, in this context. So for those of you that are not familiar with NREGS, uh, this program is meant to guarantee every rural Indian household up to 100 days of um, paid labor at a fixed minimum wage. Um, the way that it works is it's, this work is facilitated by the local government or Gram Panchayat leadership and that, you know, if, um, if Jen would like uh, to do work, she's meant to, you know, say, ask me if I'm the village leader, and I'm sort of supposed to be obligated to provide provide work for her. This is the way it works in theory. In practice, it doesn't work like that. In the notion that um, when people do request work, a lot of times they don't get it, but the um, the GP leaders do tend to schedule these work projects at times when there's not a lot of other market work opportunities. So, you know, kind of notionally provides people with work uh, during times when other types of work uh, is, is scarce. Um, but local leaders also use this opportunity, um, uh, or this, this program as an opportunity to appropriate funds from the, um, the, the central government, and the leaders will often say, you know, just make up a lot of work of people who never did, did, did work and take those wages uh, themselves. Um, you know, partially in, in response to concerns about um, concerns about the amount of leakage in the program, um, the, this, the India has been in the process of shifting from a cash payout system to a system in which all wages are electronically deposited into uh, beneficiary-owned bank accounts. Um, that push started in 2008, and I think payment into a bank account is finally mandatory as of 2016. You know, when we started the project in MP in 2014, you know, essentially all households had been moved over to uh, electronic payment. Um, but each um, household was essentially what I'm going to call linked to just one bank account. And you know what that means is that each household kind of has uh, what's called a job card, and this is sort of, this is their entitlement, and the names of all the officially registered workers live on that job card. 
And then if Jen comes in and works, you know, sort of you you write down the names of the people on the job cards who are present, and then the wages get sent to the bank account that's listed next to the person's name on the job card. Um, so what happens in MP is, you know, typically every single person with, within the household would have the same account number listed to their names, and all the wages would go to one place. Okay. Um, and what this means in this context is women's wages are often going to be paid to their husbands. Typically, those accounts are the new new accounts. Oh, like what is? Like, so the new accounts created uh, under the gender schemes, or they were uh, accounts they had anyways, or like even before your big inclusion thing, mm -hmm. if everybody uh, was linked to a bank account, they had some accounts on the other. Like they were coming from, like they are kind of no savings accounts that were created in a previous degree. Mm -hmm. or yeah. So we should, to be honest, we should do a little bit more analysis of this. Um, the so. One of the data sources that we're using is the um, administrative data attached to this program, which is you know, great data in the sense that you can kind of see every single transaction that you know, kind of has happened in NREX, and you can see where that money is sent and what the bank account is. Um, I can tell you that post office accounts are very rare, which would be sort of like the first generation. Um, we don't have a perfect way of identifying new no-frill accounts, um, but it does seem to be correlated with the account number at our bank. So one thing that has been on the to-do list for a while has been to just look and see, you know, say of the men's accounts, um, how many of them look to be these kind of community-based banking accounts versus, you know, say an older account at a, a brick-and-mortar branch in a larger city. Um, I don't know. I can tell you that very few of the accounts we've been working with, the admin data, I think we have it from, you know, kind of I guess going back for, for quite some time, and most of the bank accounts are not updated. So my hunch is that a non-trivial share of the men's accounts are probably at like a brick and mortar branch outside of the community, but I can't tell you for sure. And you seem to begin to call women they are paid going to uh, um, all of it, or you see money sitting in the account? Yeah, people take it out. In both, the, in both the old ones and the new ones that are created by the women? We don't, so none of these women had bank accounts when we started. Um, we have some data for the men that we haven't dug into too much, but you know, what I'll show you with the admin data for the new accounts is that the balances are incredibly low, the money tends to blow out. Um, yeah, so I should pause, I guess, for those of you that know a little bit less about financial inclusion in, um, in India. When, when, um, when the government started this transition from cash payment to electronic benefits, um, banks were generally only accessible in larger cities. Um, or people would have a bank account at the local post office, which was not very secure. Um, and the, you know, kind of the Indian government, uh, now at the national level, but even before that, when we started working at MP, um, our, our, our state of Madhya Pradesh was in the process of a state level push to ensure that every um, Indian household had access to banking services within five kilometers of the home. <laughs> And essentially what this means is that uh, within each of these 197 GPs that we're working in, um, there's what's called a, a community banking kiosk. They call these customer service points, or I'll refer to them as CSPs. And essentially this is like a guy who is sitting in some room within the village with a little point of sale machine. And somebody can come in, have their fingerprint scanned, scan their bank card, and perform banking transactions at this CSP. The accounts that are offered by the CSP have you know, kind of no recurring fees and pay some nominal interest on a biannual basis. So you know, the, 
motivation of this program is to really make financial services accessible to uh, the poor in India. And this is particularly important in our context where women don't have a lot of mobility, you know, they usually can at least move somewhat freely within their own communities. So um, we were working completely with um, these sort of, our banking partners to um, open um, these no-cost, low-fill bank accounts um, uh, for women sampled for uh, financial inclusion at these community banking kiosks. Um, and you know what we did here is after we identified our sample, we helped folks with their account paperwork, um, you know, and then took women back to the CSP once they had their account numbers in their cards to do a demonstration of a deposit and a withdrawal. Okay, so you can kind of think of all the women that are getting bank accounts with us are getting bank accounts um, at this sort of low frill, no frills community banking kiosk. Um, some of these women's husbands are going to have bank accounts at more formal bank branches that are further, that are further away. Um, and when we did this financial inclusion, we sort of did it in two different flavors. The first was accounts basic, which was really all about just getting this account open, making sure that women had their account uh, numbers and cards, and doing a demo of depositing and withdrawing. Um, you know, to be perfectly honest, when we were in the middle of doing accounts basic, um, we kind of went to the field and we're like, you know, oh my gosh, like women really don't have. Um, a very clear sense of what a bank account is and how it fits into their lives. This is like a very new technology. Um, and we were concerned whether or not this was gonna work. And so in response to that, we decided to uh, add this second flavor of financial inclusion, which I'm gonna call Accounts Plus. You know, all the women that were selected for Accounts Plus got you know, everything in this basic package, as well as a, a group-based uh, information session. This was a really basic information session. Um, it was sort of facilitated in community buildings within uh, the villages with groups of, say, 20 women. It took about two hours. Um, and our facilitators you know, went through with kind of a narrative story on flashcards. Um, and, and the story kind of emphasized, you know, one, like, what is this CSP account? Um, and what can you do with it? And there it talked about the fact that, oh, well, you know, you can save money in it. You can receive benefit transfers, like in regs. Um, there was also a bit of explanation of why money kept in this location was safe and how the CSP was linked up to a larger bank in the bank background. Um, you know, and so, so you should think of this as really, I almost think of it as like theory of change education for like why a bank account might matter. It's not financial literacy as, as we, often, we often think about it. It really wasn't about accounting or, you know, kind of interest in compounding and a lot of these other things you think you know, our view is that was far too advanced. Like people really just needed to have a, a, just like a concrete idea, a notion of what this bank account was. Um, and in fact, you know, what we covered was very much inspired by uh, information sessions that are actually mandated by the Reserve Bank of India. Um, the, the rural banks are meant to be doing this uh, with new customers as, as they're banked, because um, I think policymakers recognize that this is important. Um, however, in practice, it never happens, at least in our area. And so this was one of the motivations for why we're sort of plugging that gap, okay? Um, so our interventions included this, you know, kind of accounts basic. Uh, we're gonna refer to the, the, the basic plus is group-based facilitation session as accounts plus. Um, and then what we're gonna do is cross-cut these two different versions of financial inclusion um, with an intervention that's gonna increase women's control over these in, re uh, these in regs wages. Um, and we're gonna call this linking, right? And so what happened here is that, you know, after we did the financial inclusion activities, you know, essentially what the study team did is we made a request um, to the government to 
link a woman's new account to um, her name on this NREG job card. And so really it's just a matter of kind of deleting the, say, the husband's account next to her name and replacing it with um, a woman's own new account number. Um, and you know, women were kind of had to give consent for this and were informed, uh, you know, we're going to link your account and that this is what it means. You should be looking for your NREG's uh, money in, in your new bank account from here on out. Um, so putting all this stuff together, this is a picture of what the experiment looks like. Um, we started uh, with a baseline census of about 14,000 households. You know, we drilled down to our 5,600 eligible married couples. Um, and then they're you know, kind of randomly assigned to one of these five different bins, either the control group, they get nothing. This is our status quo. Um, another group got just accounts basic. Another group got accounts plus. And then we have the package of accounts basic as well as linking and accounts plus as well as linking, okay? Um, what I'm gonna do uh, with the empirical results, which we'll go to in two slides, um, is since we're less interested in, you know, kind of financial inclusion per se, and in fact don't see any really robust impacts of financial inclusion, I'm gonna kind of use accounts basic as my main comparison group. So, you know, really what we're thinking about is, you know, what's the, you know, additional benefits of one kind of more hand-holding when it comes to uh, account opening, as well as linking, you know, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, a state of the world in which people just get very bare-bones financial inclusion. Okay. Right. So, you know, this is just a slide to, I won't spend too much time on this. This is basically showing you that the, uh, that the randomization functioned well, and we talked a little bit about, um, characteristics of the women a few slides ago. You know, I should just point out that, you know, although only um, like 10% of women can read and write, about 57% of men can read and write. So there's certainly, you know, a big literacy gap within, within these households, which, you know, I think reflects gender inequities more broadly in, in, in these communities. Um, okay, so with that, let's move to the main results. Um, I'll start with banking, and so I'm gonna do everything in graphs uh, for this seminar. Um, and so let me show you what the graphs are. Essentially what I'm doing for each outcome um, is I'm plotting the average value for our five different groups, starting with Accounts Basic here, our main um, comparison group. And then we have Accounts Plus Linking, Accounts Basic Linking, Accounts Plus, and then the control group over here. Um, and then I have a kind of confidence intervals at the top of uh, the bars other than our comparison group bar. And you know, essentially, what you can see is that you know, if, if these whiskers um, are outside the dotted line, that means that there's a statistically significant difference versus um, accounts basic or bare bones uh, financial inclusion. In the paper, we do other statistical tests to see if you know, there's a significant effect of, say, just linking or a significant difference versus the control group. I can kind of tell you about those as we go along, or if you're curious, I, I can answer. You can ask, I can answer to the best of my memory. Um, Okay, so you know this, this first picture is just to show you that we were successful in our financial inclusion efforts in that when we came back for our N-line survey, which took place about um, five to six months after we really got uh, kind of implementation of the intervention done to our satisfaction, um, we see a really big difference in bank account ownership. Um, you know, 43% of women in the control group did report that they had uh, a bank account. This is largely due to the fact that India is in the middle of a massive financial inclusion push, which got a lot of these women who were unbanked at baseline. Um, you know, however, we were able to bring uh, financial inclusion up to about 90%. Okay, so we're capturing a lot more women in terms of getting them bank accounts. Um, you know, however, women really don't 
use these accounts very much. The second panel is just showing the share of women who say that they've been to the bank within the past six months. Um, you know, and what you can see is that the mean here is very low. It's something like 10% in, in the control group, maybe 17% with basic financial inclusion. Um, however, it does seem that both um, accounts plus linking and accounts plus, uh, these rates are higher, right? So when you give this additional facilitation in terms of group-based information sessions, women do report that they are heading to the bank a bit more. Um, but you know, my view is this is by no means unlocking a savings revolution uh, on, on the part of these women. Um, you know, people are using these accounts occasionally uh, if they use them at all. Yeah. The women setting where it's linked, hmm? they never go to the bank, the, the money just activates on their account? I think that um, people go occasionally, I think largely because well, so, so I guess two things. One yeah, is there's 20% I've gone once in the past yeah. six months. Mm -hmm. So that means, I mean, I guess maybe not many people are working for anything. It's not that bad. Yeah, so I'll show you, um, let me just show you this. This is the picture of cumulative and REX deposit over our study period. So this is just what went in, kind of within the, the four groups. And the green line is accounts plus linking. Um, and these dashed vertical lines are implementation periods. So you can see it took us quite some time to um, kind of get uh, implementation right. And then I think we were done with 86% of our surveys in November 2015, so that's about here. Um, so we kind of have this unfortunate timing issue in that um, during 2015, as Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister, is not a super huge fan of Enriga, and um, they had sort of stopped sending um, money from the center to the states to spend on new projects. And so there was a little bit of, um, there was a very flat period of, uh, in terms of Enreg's work opportunities uh, prior to our end line, and we started doing the end line just as this stuff was starting to pick up. Um, you know, what you can see from the admin data is, you know, once the funds started flowing, there's sort of a bit of an inflection point. Um, but, you know, for better or for worse, we're kind of asking right around here. And I think something like, um, if you look at the share of accounts that received NREG's payments, uh, I want to say in the admin data, it's something like 16% within, you know, kind of from here on forward. So. This is a very long-winded way of saying we, the usage rates we see are actually consistent with the infrequent amount of um, in regs work opportunities sort of during our, our first end line. We're going to do another end line in a few months, so we're sort of hoping to see what's happened now that the program has actually started to work much better going forward. And the admin data was done with all of you as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to show you that at that stage. Because if you don't really need to ask that in the survey, they are with all the money that's gone to the state. Mostly. I think there's some concern that local officials occasionally still find a way into the accounts, but yes, I mean, we're going to ask both. But yeah, we, you do see the usage kind of picking up. Um, so, yeah, um, you said that only 10% can read and write. Um, what about like math? And I was curious about like the plus group versus the other ones. Did you have to do some adding and subtracting, which would the bank account you wouldn't know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we didn't do any financial literacy whatsoever, um, and we don't ask about, we didn't ask about numeracy in the survey, so I can't give you a really hard answer. Um, I will tell you that most people, uh, even when they're illiterate, are nominally numerate. Um, you know, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I would say it's a bit better, but um, 
it was, we certainly met a woman, for example, who was like, every time I go, I take a receipt and I show it to somebody in my household so they can read it to make sure that this guy, like, you know, hasn't cheated me or something like that. So, um, okay, and so this is also getting, uh, you know, getting to Esther's question, this is the average daily balance in these accounts. And so, you know, one thing that you can see is in spite of, you know, withdrawals are really torquing up, especially in terms of in regs, which are, you know, really large and important relative to non in regs deposits, right? Um, this is an important source of, um, for payments for women in the linked, the linked group. Um, and you know what you can see is that the average daily balances here do move up a little bit, but they're extremely low. Um, so I think you know, this is sort of saying in August of 2016 in accounts plus linking, the average daily balance was about maybe 340 Indian rupees versus you know, maybe 160 in accounts plus without the linking. Um, it's, uh, it's about 65 rupees to the dollar um, in this area. So we're really talking about um, average daily balances of a couple bucks. And so generally what happens is large deposits is these accounts and then they, they come out shortly thereafter. Okay. Um, all right, so, so that's, that's that in terms of, you know, kind of broad um, banking data. But what I want to show you now is that, you know, and what you can kind of see here, what this suggests, uh, you know, both in terms of the two groups that have the highest average daily balances are those that receive linking. You can also kind of see these NREGS deposits uh, ticking up in, in, in the groups that receive linking. Um, women did receive NREGS wages into these new bank accounts that we opened. This is kind of like the first stage of linking mattering for people. Um, and so what I'm showing you here is just um, a bar graph just uh, to, to show whether or not a woman received a deposit into an individually owned account, this time looking at the NREGS administrative data. So uh, for better or for worse, the way that we define an individual account is if that account number is kind of unique to the woman on her job card and not shared with another member. So in theory, if it was a woman's own individual account that she shared with her husband, we would classify that as joint, but I think that's not that's not going to be super common in this um, in the study context. And you know what you will first note is that if we didn't do the linking, you know, essentially, women never receive accounts in you know never receive payments into accounts that are exclusively theirs. Um, you know, kind of. However, about 20% of women had received at least one deposit into um, in regs between kind of the end of our implementation and September of this year when we did linking coupled with um, the accounts plus facilitation. Uh, you can see that accounts basic linking also increases rates of payments, but the increase is a fair bit lower. This is about an 11 percentage point increase. Okay. Um, and, and you know, here's just a plot of the value of, of um, these payments. I think this averages is about uh, something like 700 Indian rupees over the same period. Um, but you know, what's important is if you look at the value of these NREGS deposits for the women that received them, um, they average about uh, $61 between this May 2015 to September 2016 period. This is 26% of um, women's non-NREGS income for the same group. So this is a non-trivial payment um, for, for those that receive it. Um, and you know, I think this is going to be important when thinking about, you know, do we think that this is, this, you know, kind of ownership of this endowment is sufficient to say uh, change women's bargaining position within the household. This is this is this is not conditional on working. Essentially, what this is saying is it's saying, okay, let's think about women that received at least one NREGS deposit. 
Um, the value of those deposits is $61. Let's compare that to the average annual income, regardless of whether or not they work. So you're right that in the background, there's a set of women who you know, kind of are not receiving any income. Um, that's about a quarter of people. Yeah. How did you get to know what their bank balance is? I mean, how do you acquire the data? Um, with a non-disclosure agreement um, with one of our two, one of our two banking partners, and um, we also asked them for self consensual well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They also have to agree. I think ninety-nine percent of women said this is fine. Um, so. All right. Um, so, so you know. Long and short of it here is a non-trivial share of women do receive and write payments into their individual account when we link, and the value of these payments is, is important relative to income. Um, and you know what we do is we have some evidence that women did indeed work for and regs more, um, you know, as measured both by, uh, in the uh, administrative data, it's quite clear if you look at like kind of the share of people who worked from between the end of our implementation to the end line survey, um, you know, relative to accounts basic, accounts plus linking, you know, we're going back to about 11% of women participating to about 26% of women participating. Um, if you look at self-reports, the data is a bit mushier. Um, and that we don't see significant differences when we look at just a woman's self-report. Um, if we say a woman worked for in regs, if either she or her spouse um, said that she worked, uh, we, we do see, you know, kind of, this is probably like a 60-some percent increase, or about a six percentage point increase in rates of work and accounts plus linking. Um, so, you know, this is, I think, suggestive that women are working more for the program, and it's not, you know, kind of just a, something, say, driven by corruption. Uh, you know, for better or for worse, our timing wasn't great here, and that, you know, and Reg's work was really just starting to take up. So we'll be able to say, you know, what's happening in the longer run, um, you know, hopefully a few, a few months from, from now. So the difference in the previous slide between the account uh, plus linking and the account basic linking mm -hmm. it comes from the fact that the account plus linking women were working more, not on the fact that conditional on working, they were more likely to get the yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so is it like the account basic linking, they never knew that that money was an account to them or like how do you how do you think about that difference? Right, right. So I think there's this broad question of like, you know, what is it about Accounts Plus that mattered? I do think that there, um, I think it, I, I don't have a perfect answer, for better or for worse. Um, certainly the content emphasized, uh, you did talk about Enrega and benefits transfers, so I think it's plausible that it reinforced women's understanding that this is where the benefits were going to go. Um, if we look at our end uh, line outcomes, I think the one outcome that's particularly striking vis-a-vis Accounts Plus is um, we ask women if it's appropriate to, um, you know, can a woman kind of go to the community-based bank in absence of uh, like being chaperoned by a relative? Um, about 25% of people say that that's okay, but Accounts Plus increases that by something like 14 percentage points. Um, so I also think that, you know, there's kind of this notion that, like my own hypothesis is that part of what Accounts Plus did is it helped women understand the technology and help women feel like this is something that they can kind of use and operate in. Um, and I think if you're not kind of empowered to access the account on your own or don't have a clear understanding of where the money is going to go, you may not you know, make an effort to really receive that benefit. But I think that's a little bit speculative on my part. Yeah, I was saying that in another work with Oli, when we see a difference between what's in the database and what's in people's reports, we call that leakage. Mm -hmm. So what would I, you know, widen uh, what we see in the database? 
I think that I think some of it certainly is. You know, one of the, my hunch is that you know it's, it's hard to say. I think there might be some recall issue, which I guess people never really pay attention to. But you know, if we're kind of saying, okay, when was the last time you worked for Enregs? They might you know be telescoping a little bit. Um, so I think there might be some recall. I do think a lot of this is leakage. This is an area with a ton of leakage. Um, there's not a clear theoretical reason why leakage should be higher in the accounts plus linking group um, in that all the accounts that we opened for women were biometrically authenticated and so it's sometimes you know we're sort of introducing like, some nominal barrier uh, to these local officials for getting the accounts whereas I think and again this goes back to we need to dig into a bit more like what exactly what kind of account do, do these men have like what are we substituting away from but some of them are certainly accounts that were not biometric, biometrically authenticated um, so, you know, my guess is we probably made it, uh, if anything, a bit more costly um, uh, to, to, to steal money. So it's, it's hard for me to imagine why this linking would actually increase corruption. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that a second round of data will help us get a clearer answer uh, in terms of what's going on there. You mentioned um, in passing that the money flows out of the accounts really fast. So are the women withdrawing it just to give it back to their husbands, right? And so is that why you see the uptick? Mm -hmm. So I will show you at the end, if we have time, some evidence that women are uh, kind of hanging onto this money and using okay. it to engage in economic transactions. So in looking at this, if I understand the graphs correctly, I wonder if something that's going on is that a woman doesn't want to um, say she worked because it's really between her and her bank account as mm -hmm. to whether there's any money in and maybe she wants to keep that secret. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, another explanation is that there's a question of who are these women on the margin. What I'll show you in a couple slides is that 75% um, of women do report doing some work for pay. Um, that said, I think there are norms against female work. And if you think of the people on the margin that are kind of being encouraged to work or those where those norms were binding, they might be a little bit less forthcoming with, um, with, with surveyors. But, you know, right now I don't have super strong evidence that is, um, you know, con consistent with that. Did you have a question? Oh, okay. okay, great. All right, so, so this is what's happening in terms of the program. Um, you know, but what I think is particularly, and, and this is consistent with this idea that, you know, we sort of did something that is making, you know, NREG's work more attractive uh, for these women. Um, what's particularly striking is we also see pretty substantial increases in women's work uh, in the private sector. Um, and so, you know, kind of the, the, the first thing you might, if you want to think about sort of female labor force participation overall, you can look at this first panel here, which is just whether or not a woman's principal activity was working. Um, and here what we do is we kind of go from, I think, about 20, it was like 27% of women to essentially 40% of women saying, you know, yes, my main occupation is a worker. So I think this is like a 13, 14 percentage point increase. Uh, in terms of participation in the private sector. Um, one thing that you'll see in our context where households tend to be quite poor <coughs> is that many women are loosely attached to the labor market in that you know, they're not kind of working regularly throughout the entire year, but will work for, from time to time. And so what we did is we went sector by sector through, I think, 13 sectors, including you know, kind of casual agricultural labor, um, non-agricultural casual labor, uh, self-employment, uh, animal husbandry, so on and so forth, to ask women, you know, did you do any work in this sector? And if so, did you receive payment for this work? 
Um, and once you aggregate up, what you see is that about 75% of women do say that they did some kind of work in the past year, and we're increasing this by about 8 percentage points. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, so this is all non-NREGS work. Um, you know, one worry vis-a-vis -vis what we see on this page uh, is, you know, perhaps women are just a little bit confused about what constitute NREGS work and, you know, what is private sector work. Um, <laughs> we've done lots of qualitative scoping on this and people seem to have very clear ideas. Um, another thing we asked uh, in these questions was we specifically asked them how they were paid. Um, you know, were you paid in kind, were you in paid in cash, and were you paid, you know, kind of by a, like a direct deposit into your bank account? Because we know that the NREGS money for the linking folks is going into the bank account. Reassuringly, like, you know, like 60 people in the entire survey of 40, you know, 4,600 women say that they were paid um, into a bank account. So, you know, this is very consistent with this notion that they are not sort of confusing NREGS work um, for, for private sector work. Um, and if you kind of decompose things, what you see is this is really driven by women doing more um, work kind of in ca casual labor markets, both agricultural and non-agricultural, that's compensated in cash for a daily wage. Um, and, you know, we can kind of think about the distributional, uh, or, you know, kind of think also about the intensive margin of, of these work effects. Um, we can both look at, you know, kind of the number of months that women work uh, per year, as well as kind of their annual earnings within the <coughs> private sector. Um, this is a cumulative distribution function of earnings and months worked. Um, and you know, just to make it a little bit easier, I've left uh, accounts plus linking as the green line. And what you can see is this is shifted everywhere to the right. Um, so I think women are working about like 0.8 months more, and they're earning about 24% more in terms of their annual, their annual income here. So what's this is significant. So this difference vis-a-vis -vis, um, accounts, uh, accounts basic is uh, significant. The earnings and levels is significant at the 10% level. If we do a hypersign, it's um, like significant at the 1% level. And the other thing that is, I think, really important to emphasize in terms of the private sector is we can also do statistical tests of whether or not the effect of purely linking uh, is significant. So that would be comparing, say, you know, accounts plus linking to plain old accounts plus are doing a joint test of this difference um, along with di this difference here. And all the linking effects for the private sector are really, really strongly statistically significant across all the outcomes. Um, so it seems that, you know, kind of just this act of, of, of linking is really getting women into labor force. The portfolio for some reason seems to be a little higher than Yeah, yeah. Um, we can, I mean, we, we also reject this one too, so it's not kind of an artifact of when there's a main occupation worker, it could, be, it could come from them being an LGA worker. Or do you think when there's a main occupation worker, they mean yeah, it could it could be from the NREGA worker. Um, you know, the other caveat this was actually reported by by um, the husband. Um, this is sector by sector, and we have no evidence whatsoever that this is being driven by NREGA. Like nobody's reporting getting payments into bank accounts in this group. And if you you know it's less than one percent, and there's no significant difference across across groups. Um, so here, this is sort of the graph where we sort of really specified very narrow activities to see if people. But we're, we're hoping to, um, in our next wave of data collection, we actually want to do an experimental work activity where we offer people an opportunity to work um, and do agricultural labor so that we can very precisely observe like, whether or not people are going and you know, at what wage. Um, so stay tuned. <laughs> All right. Any more on, on this? Okay. So now what I want to do is kind of pause uh, and kind of argue that these results, and in particular the private sector work results, um, are a bit surprising. 
Um, if you think about ways that economists typically um, conceptualize um, uh, how households might decide about labor force uh, participation. And so in terms of what's going on, um, let me first tell you about two things I think it's definitely not. Um, you know, the first would be easing uh, savings constraints. Um, Mike Callan, who uh, used to be here at the Kennedy School, has a really cool paper where they find that giving uh, folks um, kind of bank accounts in Sri Lanka um, has really big impacts actually on uh, wage work. And they kind of argue that it's like, you know, now that I have a safe place to save, I can keep my money somewhere safe, that's going to encourage me to work more. Um, you know, we don't think that this is very likely in our context. Um, you know, one, it's not like women are using these accounts to save like crazy. And two, you know, what's nice is we find a very strong significant peer linking effect in the private sector work. And so that's holding the savings, you know, the financial inclusion environment constant. Um, you know, another possibility is um, if you think about uh, research that's looked at the kind of overall impact of NREGS on um, kind of local level wages. Um, there's some evidence that introduction of the program in states where it functioned well actually increased private sector wages. Now, if that happened in our context, that could explain why women are working more. Um, you know, however, we don't find any impact of uh, accounts plus linking or any of our linking interventions on private sector wages. And you know, to be honest, that's not very surprising because our treated women were a pretty small share of uh, the total population in these areas. So it would, it would be. Um, you know, it's not, I wouldn't have expected to see general equilibrium effects here, kind of ex ante anyway. Um, now, what's more plausible? Here I've listed two different ones. You know, one is this notion that what we've done is we've kind of moved from a world in which women's wages are being sent directly to their husband to, to one in which they're sent into a bank account that women you know, can kind of uniquely access. And even if we don't change the official and regs wage, which is you know, kind of set by the government and very stable, we might have kind of increased a woman's effective and regs wage, you know, if she kind of gets to control more of this income on the margin. Um, you know, and this could be particularly important in terms of thinking about how those wages are spent within the household, say, um, if things like mental accounting or, you know, asymmetric information between husbands and wives are um, uh, you know, another possibility is that this shifted women's bargaining power within the household, right? We also think that this is possible because, you know, the value of these in-regs payments is non-trivial vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, uh, -vis kind of women's overall earnings. And in fact, come at a time, uh, you know, within the year, say, when, when earnings are particularly tight, right? Um, so this might, you know, kind of increase women's ability to kind of, you know, push back against uh, their husband's desires and, uh, you know, assert their own, um, own desires. So we kind of have these two candidates that we think is most, um, you know, plausible, especially when we think about what's happening with accounts plus linking. So first, I want to think about whether or not this kind of I'm going to call this like wage taxation channel. So imagine a story of the world in which what's really changing is just how much of say this and regs uh, income a woman is able to keep and control uh, in terms of how it's spending. So. This could explain increased program participation, but you know the thing to note about the private sector work is it's a completely separate market. We did not change those wages, and those wages are paid in cash, and we did not change how those wages are paid. So if you know what accounts plus linking did was effectively made NREGs more attractive as a place to work, we would see increased participation at the program, but at the expense of work on the private sector, which is the opposite of what we see in the data. Um, you know, if there are fixed costs to working, you could almost imagine that the NREGS program is like a carrot that draws women to the labor force for the first time, and you know, maybe now they've paid these fixed costs or realize that working isn't so bad. 
Um, and so they then decide to engage in work in the private sector. Um, I also think that this is a little bit less plausible. Um, just in that, you know, kind of I think the first, uh, the, the first sort of fixed cost that comes to mind, at least to me, would be one notion of um, childcare costs, but we don't see any meaningful heterogeneity in the treatment effects um, with respect to age of the youngest child. Um, you know, another potential cost could be kind of uh, job networks, like learning about private sector work opportunities, but the way that these markets tend to function in these villages is, like a labor recruiter will visit a household and just say, you know, do people in this household want to say work on so-and-so's farm the next day? You know, that's an offer that's open to both men and women, and you know, men are very highly attached to the labor market in this context, so we also don't think that that's uh, super plausible. Um, and you know, in, we're hoping with the experimental work intervention to be able to get uh, you know, some of like, this, this issue a little bit more directly in the future. Um, yeah. We don't see any change in household conflict. Um, I, you'll see that you know essentially the way that we're modeling the bargaining power story is really with this notion that like the, the, the man bears a, a fixed a fixed cost. Um, and so I would kind of lump it more into into that that hypothesis, which we'll, we'll get to perhaps a bit later. Um, you know, my own view is what, what do we need from this wage taxation story to explain, you know, kind of the impacts on both of these sectors? Well, you would need this idea that kind of the woman's, you know, kind of effective wage, you know, the amount she's able to keep and control would have to increase both in the NREGs as well as in the private sector. Um, you know, this is a less standard model of, um, you know, kind of household decision making within economics. So I'm Perhaps less uh, less favorably inclined because, in some sense, if if you could think of this as a husband kind of taxing the, the the wife's wages, the most efficient way to do that would be through a lump sum through a lump sum tax and not on the margin like this. Um, you know, the other piece of evidence that we have that suggests that maybe this isn't going on is what we see is we see a big increase in women who just start to work for the first time. Um, and if you think that what's happening in the background is that men are kind of taxing women's wages, this is almost like a new income source for them. They're now able to you know, appropriate income that they didn't have before, which would suggest that if anything, they're going to work less. But what we see is that, you know, kind of men's private sector work participation doesn't change, and there's some evidence that they're working more for and right. So that kind of runs counter to this sort of dual taxation model. Um, the story that uh, I think is a bit more plausible is, is a bargaining power. Um, and, and to begin to think about this, um, I'll just talk very loosely about uh, a, a model, so hopefully it's not too, not too painful. Um, but we're kind of just starting with a straw man, which would be a standard model of uh, efficient household decision making. And you know, kind of the way to think about this intuitively is you know, we have like a husband and a wife in a household, um, and they're going to kind of uh, have preferences or enjoy two things. You know, one, they're gonna enjoy consumption, they like eating stuff. And two, you know, they're going to enjoy leisure, right? They like to, you know, kind of sit around and relax with their friends. Um, and you know, what they need to do is they need to think about, you know, kind of what are we going to do with, you know, say, income from our farm as well as income from our labor, and how are we going to use that to, you know, kind of divide shares of consumption and leisure between the two spouses. Um, and what we do is we think about, you know, kind of women as having some relative bargaining power, which effectively, you know, effectively determines the size of the pie that she's able to keep. 
Um, and so when women gain bargaining power, you know, intuitively, what do they get? Well, they get a bigger slice of the pie. And in this context, what does a bigger slice of the pie mean? Well, it means getting to enjoy more consumption. It also means getting to enjoy more leisure, right? So in this standard model, if women experience an increase in bargaining power, they're actually going to work less. Right? So this is very much inconsistent with what we see in our data. Um, however, what this completely ignores is this notion that I talked about at the very beginning that social norms might be really important, right? And that's nowhere in this, this sort of utility function here. And in particular, men might have strong preferences over whether or not their women, whether or not their wives <laughs> the labor market. <laughs> this isn't on video, right? Okay. Um, so, and, and we're doing some scoping on this now, and you know, hopefully we'll more data, but you know, one thing that we've been hearing from men in the field is that, you know, there's this notion that if members of the community see your wife out working in the field, this reflects really poorly upon you because what that's saying is that you are not able to kind of earn enough to support your household, which you know threatens this this male breadwinner norm. Okay, and so what we want to do is we want to kind of integrate language to talk about this within this household bargaining context. Um, and so we're going to do this really, really simply. We're just going to assume that, you know, and this is related to Nimrata's earlier point, that, you know, men and or women might incur utility costs, which we're just going to make a fixed cost, if a woman decides to enter the labor force. And so you can kind of think about this as, you know, I like imagine a husband who he likes his consumption, he likes his leisure. You know, the fact that his wife is, you know, outside working in the household is going to, you know, kind of impose some personal costs that he'd, he'd rather not bear. Um, you know, it turns out in the model, um, if women incur this cost, but men don't, nothing changes. We get the exact same result. You know, women fully internalize the norms cost, and what that means is that, you know, if female bargaining power goes up, they're still going to work less and they're going to consume more. Um, however, if we you know, allow for the possibility that men also bear some norms cost, what this means is you're going to have a set of households where women would privately be very happy to work given the household's economic, um, economic situation. But they're going to stay at home because their husbands have a strong preference they stay at home and they have a low level of bargaining power, right? So they don't, can't really push back against this request to ask for the husband to stay home. Um, we sort of think of these as women who are like socially constrained, right? So kind of constrained from working uh, owing to the preferences of their husbands. Um, and so what are the predictions we get out of this framework? Well, you know, one, as I mentioned, if these constraints don't matter, women fully internalize them, then, you know, increasing female bargaining power is going to reduce labor force participation. So, you know, our data very much push back against this. This doesn't seem plausible. Um, however, if men internalize some of these um, norms costs, then increasing female bargaining power could increase female labor force participation. It's not, uh, it's not unambiguous, but for some groups it could. And in particular, female labor force participation is going to be most likely to increase when, one, women were constrained or not in the labor force prior to the intervention, right? And when men are opposed to working. And so what I want to do now is show you two pieces of evidence that are kind of consistent with these predictions here. Um, so the first is to say, okay, well, when are women uh, constrained? That's when they're not working at baseline. Um, at baseline, we don't have an overall measure of labor force participation, but what we do have is a woman's report about whether or not she's ever in her life worked for NREGS, which is highly, highly correlated with um, labor force participation in the control group at our end line. Um, and so what I'm doing here is these um, bars are just 
plotting the um, accounts, the kind of pure linking treatment effect, the, the treatment effect of moving from accounts plus to accounts plus as well as linking, um, for two different groups of women, women who had never worked for the program at baseline and women who had worked at the program at baseline. Um, and then the outcomes here are whether or not you worked for NREGS in the admin data, according to a woman's own report, um, whether or not the woman did any work for pay whatsoever um, in, in the past year, uh, whether or not a woman's main occupation is, is working, the months of work she worked last year, and her earnings in the private sector. And what you can see is that the bar for women who had not worked for NREGS at baseline is always higher and statistically significant, where in general we actually don't see significant effects for women who had already been working for the program at baseline. All right, so this is consistent with the notion of like, who are we moving here? We're moving women who were not in the labor force before, which is consistent with this norm story. Okay. Um, you know, the second prediction is that, well, when should we see action here? We should see action when um, men are particularly opposed to women working. Um, and so what we're going to do here is we're going to use a question um, from our end line, which is whether or not um, you know, a man says a woman should be able to work for in regs you know, kind of whenever she wants to, only when the household is desperate, or you know, never. And you know, what we're particularly interested in is you know, whether or not he says, OK, well, women should just be able to decide to work uh, for in regs whenever they want to. Uh, we have this at end line. Uh, so it's endogenous, so what we do here to address this issue is we take our control group and um, we do a, a probate regression where kind of support for female work is the outcome and we just regress that on kind of predetermined characteristics and we can use those predetermined characteristics to predict support for female work within our entire sample. And so what these pictures are showing you is there's this predicted male support for female work index. This is like the likelihood that a man says a woman can work whenever she wants to on the x-axis. And then on the y-axis, I'm showing you the average value of um, the different outcomes um, as they vary uh, with predicted support for female work. I'm going to show you this both for accounts plus linking as well as accounts plus. So again, this is this pure linking treatment effect. Um, and the, the vertical lines here are tertiles of um, the, the predicted support for, for female work. And you know, what you can see is that for outcome to outcome, the gap between these two lines it's consistently largest when men are least supportive of women working. There's one kind of exception to this pattern, which is um, main occupation being a worker. And what's interesting about this particular outcome is this is the one that was um, reported by men. And so you could imagine that if a man you know, very much feels social stigma when his wife is working, he might not be kind of super forthcoming about whether or not she's a worker over here. That's just my um, but broadly what we see is that it looks like our treatment effects are really concentrated among these households where men are more opposed to um, female work. And I think we can kind of formally reject the quality of these, these differences across the tertiles into something like, let's say, five of eight or five of seven of, of, of the outcomes in the paper. Yeah, no, I think that's right. The thing that's really, um, you know, the thing that I guess is, the thing that's completely unambiguous is that we should see positive treatment effects when somebody was not working before. That's almost tautological. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think that this pattern is, I think it's consistent if you think about, 
a context where norms are important, but 75% of people are engaging in some kind of labor just because they're poor. But you're absolutely right that you know it could be it could be nonlinear, right? Like if the hump were over here, I could I could. I think I guess I would say the other thing that is would be perhaps a, a bit less um, compelling is if it were all concentrated among households that were very pro pro work. Um, okay. But yeah. So I think for a number of reasons. Okay, so impacts on um, other outcomes. I guess I have about seven minutes, so yep. we can spend some time uh, talking about these. But I you need a way a bit of time for questions. Oh, do we want to do questions or discussion? All right. Well, you know what I'll do. I'll just talk through these in words because it looks like there's not an easily accessible mouse, and then and then we can talk about after that. <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Um, okay, so. We don't just see impacts on um, we don't just see impacts on labor force participation. We do have some early evidence that's consistent with this notion of women having increased bargaining power. Um, you know, kind of subject to the caveat that this is all very short run. You know, we're going to be collecting a lot more detailed data now. You know, it's been about a year and a half since we finished implementation, um, so we're, we're pretty excited to see these results. Um, but you know, what we do see is that uh, women in this accounts plus linking treatment group, you know, one, engage in more economic transactions, and in particular, they say they kind of report that they're making more purchases with, you know, money that is theirs themselves, you know, which is consistent with this idea of women kind of entering the world a bit more and having more uh, economic control. It also supports the hypothesis that women were able to maintain some control over this income after they owned it. Um, we see some evidence of increased physical mobility to places outside of work sites. This is all relative to the control group, though. Uh, but it does look like women are kind of going out, uh, you know, kind of within the past year a bit more. Um, you know, we see no evidence of movement in terms of self-reported decision-making power. However, you know, I think our view is that given the, the short time period and the fact that these questions are sometimes difficult to interpret, that's not terribly surprising. Um, but I think importantly, we also don't have any evidence of male backlash. So this is something that sociologists tend to think about a bit more than economists. Um, but there's this notion that if you're kind of threatening uh, a man's, you know, a woman working maybe threatening a man's position within the household or threatening his, his masculinity, and one thing you can kind of do in response to that is use something like physical violence as a way of reestablishing your um, position in the household. But we find, you know, kind of no evidence of increases in gender-based violence. Um, we also don't find any evidence that women become more stressed out or anxious, which I think is also important because you could imagine that these are things that accompany becoming a more autonomous economic agent. Um, we do see some spillover effects on other women in the household in terms of um, bank accounts and in regs, but not in terms of private sector work. Um, and you know, I guess I had already talked a bit, uh, you know, in terms of in response to one of Esther's questions about well, why do we really need um, why do we need accounts plus? Um, you know, what you see is that when you have accounts plus, women are much more likely to say, um, I guess I can show it to you here because I think it's striking. Ah, oh my gosh, this is, um, you know, women are much more likely to say that they can go to the CSP uh, unsupervised, and they're also a bit more likely to um, say that the, the CSP is a safe place to save. So, you know, my view is that this is, again, like Accounts Plus may have been important because this was really the thing that empowered women to access these payments. And if you can't access these payments without your husband kind of standing over your shoulder, this isn't necessarily going to be a source of empowerment. Um, okay. So with that, I will conclude. Um, you know, what have we seen? Well, we see that, you know, from a policy perspective, you know, we think that this is exciting because, you know, one, we're showing that you can kind of use um, 
electronic payments technologies to change control over income uh, in the household in a way that you know is one changing women's participation in a very large and important government program, but it's also changing women's participation in the economy outside that program. Okay. Um, you know, these results are at odds of, you know, kind of very basic standard models of uh, household labor supply, but we think are consistent with this notion that, you know, kind of social norms and in particular norms internalized by men may have been holding women back from participating in the labor market as much as they would like to. Um, all right, so I'll, I'll pause there and we can use the rest of the time to, to talk if there are other questions. I have a question about the model that I'm about. I think I just don't Imagine that you know essentially you think there's two sectors. There's like home production, and then there's market production. And you know maybe women actually get some utility of working outside because they can socialize with their friends or, or whatever. Um, so I think that's right. That in that case, if you saw um, if you saw women um, like increasing empowerment would generate a shift from you know perhaps home production to market production. Now, I th think that, um, so, let me think about this more carefully. I, um, I, you know, to be honest, I think I would have to think about it a little bit more because again, this is like sort of completely internalized, um, Everything's internalized by women in this case. So, you know, basically what that means is that kind of in a standard model, the marginal, like the marginal return to everything is going to be equalized. And so then when you just shoot women with more money, I, I think they're just going to, again, like consume more leisure. But I, I would have to think more carefully about that. Um, so you said you said that these banking programs, right? There's an emphasis on inclusion. Yeah. Right. So so that's kind of like um, another factor that's pushing things in the right direction, you know, in terms of, of women in the workplace. I mean, I'm just, you know, I know I know that you're you're kind of studying in this particular little environment, but I think the bigger, um, you know, the larger scenario. Um, always always plays a role too you know particularly in terms of norms i mean you're getting a strong message i think out to to all the men right when when you you know when you set things up so that it's inclusive right right i think so i, I think you know this is a broad question of you know it may well be that the the architecture that india had going on in the background is really important for um, enabling these interventions to to work I, I think that's certainly you know that, that, that's certainly possible and I think the background policy environment is important you know I would say I think 
in terms of policy lessons, you know, given where India is now, there's a couple things here that uh, you know strike me as pretty important. So, you know, thinking about where do we take it next, because we are in a context where you know 28 percent of women are working, so there's a lot of ground to be gained. Thank you so much.